<sighs> Some days you just don't feel like yourself. This morning I could fly, but water damaged me. And now, I can swim through water fine, but I can't fly. We'll address all your issues regarding your sense of identity, this time on the Commune Podcast. Hello and welcome to the final Commune Podcast recording on Demon's Crest. Before we get into anything uh, heady and serious, I was wondering, uh, Wario fan, how have you been doing? I've been doing kind of awful lately. I've been sick for the better part of uh, the last few weeks. Do uh, you think it has anything to do with Demon's Crest? I think it absolutely has everything to do with Demon's Crest. I think <laughs> I have what some call a computer virus. <laughs> um, I hope you feel better. So does my Dr. Norton. <laughs> what is he a doctor in? Antivirus scans. Jeez. <sighs> I didn't know you can get a doctorate in that. Anyone can. Is that a PhD or an MD? It's a CD. <laughs> <laughs> I like puns. Shouty, how have you been doing? Uh, been doing okay. I'm uh, I'm awake. Yeah, you're staying off the streets. Yeah. Well, not today since I had to bring my mother to the bus terminal. Oh no. Fox, how have you been doing? I'm pretty good. Got through a snowstorm. Oh nice. yeah, you had it worse than uh, we did down here. We had like pretty cold weather for a day, whereas up up where you are, there was snow and lots of it. It's raining today, so it's looking better, but it didn't really change how I live. It was just indoors as usual. Zanrio, <laughs> <laughs> um, how have you been doing? Oh, yeah, um, I'm fine. Uh, glad to hear. Shouty, I was wondering if you could tell me what games you've been playing. I haven't really um, looked into um, many games that are being released recently. So I've been playing uh, Alka Heist. Is that, uh, how, is that how you pronounce it? Alka Heist, Alka Heist, Alka Hest. Yeah, I thought it was the last. Whatever. It, um, you get the point. But yeah, it's a it's an older game by Hal, and it's like that's the Kirby guys. Yeah, the the Dimit Kirby, and uh, it's not really um as cutesy as Kirby, but it does share a lot of the same type of music and. It uses a lot of sound effects that you might hear in Kirby games. So, uh, aurally speaking, it's a very Dreamland-esque experience. Yeah, but that might just be how in general. Yeah, uh, their Hyperzone stuff sounds a lot like some stuff you would hear in uh, Kirby's Dreamland 3. Oh, definitely. Uh, so how, how do you think Alka has did so far? It's like Soul Blazer or any of those games... But without the sim experience, like like the city, built uh, city building. So it's another like satisfying Zelda ripoff SNES title. Yeah. Okay. But what's cool is that um, as you like go through the game, you get these different party members, and they attack with you. Oh, neat. Yeah. So that's that's the gimmick. You also have um these summon characters that will fight alongside you. So they have, like, AI? Yeah. 
Okay. There's some, there's some of the characters do, but your partners, um, they'll just attack whenever you press the attack button, and they'll just follow you. And so they have their own super moves. They're very well choreographed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Fox, what games have you been playing? I've been playing Volgar the Viking lately. Ooh. It's it's a lot like uh, Ghosts and Goblins, actually. It's pretty much the same game. Yeah. Except you can't get screwed over by picking up a bad weapon. De- definitely, yeah. <laughs> um, so, what do you think of it so far? Uh, I beat it. Uh, what? It's pretty good. What? What? You beat it? Yeah. Get out of here. Um, it's a, would you say it is more or less difficult than your typical Ghosts and Goblins? Less. You, you, cause you got checkpoints. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> you got, uh, infinite continues with infinite checkpoints. Yes. Um, the thing that deterred me from seriously approaching that game is that there's no save points, and I, I can do gaming marathons, but not of the same game, like every night of the week. So in right. order to get good at that game, I would get tired of it first. I'm I'm kind of fond of of games that require muscle memory. I I don't know it, like like things like Super Meat Boy or or other games of that genre. I, I'm drawn to. So, so would it you, seemed like something I'd really like. Is it only platformers that that require muscle memory, or would you say you're a fan of like shooters? I might like shooters, but I haven't been into many of them. Oh man. Outside of Parodius. That's, uh, yeah, we did do Parodius. Yeah, Parodius is like, uh, baby's first Gradius. Well, you can play as baby. Well, exactly. It's true. And <laughs> <laughs> then again, who would have as baby? I usually put baby in a corner. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> has it been bad? <laughs> um, what movie is that? That's not Roadhouse. That's the other one. Never is mind. Super Mario uh, Brothers? I'm sorry. Yes, it's... <laughs> It's Patrick Swayze's Super Mario Brothers. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I believe he played Goomba number three. <laughs> um, Sanrio, what games have you been playing lately? Well, I've been... Just started 999 a few days ago. Oh, yeah, I saw that. So, uh, what do you make of it so far? Hi, it's great. I love it. How are the puzzles? That's fun. I'm... I like those kind of RuneScape games, uh, so, um, yeah, so I like the type of puzzle. So, RuneScape is like a subgenre? Yeah, kind of. It's just, it just serves RuneScape games to get all those kinds of trash games where you, yeah, solve small puzzles and collect stuff and try to just escape the room. Okay. Yeah, they're like a subset of point-and-click games. I think, yeah. uh... I think Retsu Parei has done a few of those. N- nobody here knows. Um. Wait, no, I, I know, but... I know of them, but I don't watch, so... Do you mean has done them or made fun of people playing them? They've done ones that they don't like. Oh, like oh right, the, like, like that religiously themed one. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about, but... Watching people play bad games is always fun. <laughs> <laughs> is that a little uh, sadism coming through there? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, Wario fan, what games have you been playing? 
actually, uh, today I, I booted up something that was uh, talked about in the commune a while ago, uh, Anodyne. Ooh, what'd you think of it? Well, I think it's uh, it's very Zelda. Mm. Uh, maybe with a little bit of Earthbound. Just, just would to put it. It has that, that atmosphere of Earthbound. It reminded me of A Link to the Past in that uh, it felt like I could just wander and explore at my own pace. And like even though things were unlocked gradually, you still had a huge field to walk around from the very beginning. And I found that satisfying. Uh, well, I guess what it was for me was I was expecting some sort of uh, quick little uh, half-a-day romp. But you know, I, it's actually a little more uh, more dungeony than I expected. Ah, oh, but uh, the dungeons are, are, well, they're not the best part, but they're definitely uh, really good. The dungeons, I find, uh, like the gimmicks in each dungeon, I don't think they complement uh, the the environment, like the actual aesthetic of them. I honestly can't think of any of the gimmicks. I didn't think they had. Well, I mean, gimmicks. there's the, the there's like the speed boosting begin, uh, gimmick. Oh yeah, and that was like in a. Where was that? I think that was a, I was a circus, so I guess that is kind of thematic. But I don't know. There was other things like, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but uh, I just felt some kind of disconnect between the uh, the um, how the, the the dungeon's aesthetical theme and the gimmicks they introduced, because each dungeon builds upon uh, the the gimmick in the previous one. Like after you see those those boosting um, things, you're going to see them later in other dungeons. You get a better sense of sequence than you do in Zelda. Mm, yeah, uh, for better or worse. Okay. Wario fan, did you have any other uh, lingering thoughts on Anodyne? Well, I, I think I kind of... I, I guess it's more so I can't really tell if these... Uh, like I, I like these environment areas outside and all. I can't really tell if they're dungeons or not sometimes, though. Yeah, that is. I like how they sneak the dungeons in. Yeah, it, it is very nice, though, having, having like, if, if they are environment dungeons, those are, those are usually a nice change of pace from cave. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the pirate ship from Skyward Sword, where I didn't realize it was a dungeon until I was, like, halfway through. Oh, really? I got that same experience in uh, Hanadine. For our final Demons cast, I wanted to talk about the ability to change gargoyles mid-stage. So, you know, when you hit the pause menu, you can switch between what crest you have or what fireball you're shooting, which will... Oh, is that what that's for? (laughs) Yeah, I know, crazy. You've been playing for a month, and uh, you just discovered the pause menu. (laughs) (laughs) Oh! (laughs) Um, But, yeah, it's it's kind of a change of pace from other adventure games, like... uh, Wonder Boy 3, where you have designated switching stations. It's actually kind of like a Majora's Mask, where you can just swap out what character you're using whenever you want. Hmm. So, uh, in light of that, Fox, I was wondering if you could tell me, what was one instance where you changed gargoyles when you were required to by a roadblock? I can think of general instances. Uh, I'll think of... I don't know the actual stage... 
But I, I, I tend to play as, uh, early on I tend to play as the Earth Gargoyle, cause yeah. he, I, I like his charge. But, uh, there came a stage later on, well, actually, I think almost all of them require you to play as, uh, Firebrand at some point. But, it's, you're, you're climbing a, a tower and there are spikes all over the place, and I, I'm terrible at describing things, but it's, it's... I think yeah. that it, if that is stage four, uh, the place, Stage four, the tower where you get the air gargoyle. Yeah, that's that's it. I don't think that requires you to swap anywhere. Can, can, no, can you can you still uh, make it through the the wind tunnel in that area with the earth gargoyle? I don't. I thought there was a point where you had to fly. You started as ground goyle automatically. I I tend to I I usually switch to him because I I just like playing as him. He had a pretty powerful general attack, and his charge was endearing. <laughs> so you got some use out of uh, out of being able to go faster. Uh, I liked using his charge for breaking stuff because it was it was just helpful for for getting through uh, those urns or, or tearing through sc- piles of skulls for secrets. That's true. I was doing a lot of secret hunting with him. Okay, it is neat that his attack does double damage. Um, he makes movement easier. Okay. Zenrio, what was one time where you switched gargoyles when you were required to? Um, yeah, well, um, the first time I started switching was probably in the, the time with the enemies crawling around the ground and I couldn't hit them with the fire, so I had to switch to the earth guy, the ground guy. I think that's stage oh. two, the lower path. Stage two, yes, yeah. So then I had to switch back and forth between yeah. Yeah, because there are some spikes where think. you can't uh, get through with Firebrand, or yeah. as Ground Goyle. Yeah. Um. And so, did did you enjoy the experience of switching back and forth between gargoyles? Well, it's the switching part itself was fun. Kind of um, when you had to switch and stuff. Uh, the annoying part was having to go to the menu, click, go every single time. Yeah, it's it's weird that the stage design really encourages gargoyle switching, but it feels like the developers did not intend it because it's hidden away. Well, it's not hidden, but, you know, it's kind of unceremoniously dumped in a pause menu. Yeah, I think they should have like, a button that can switch between them. You have Instead. the shoulder buttons free. Yeah, they can use that just to switch. Yeah, I do think that is a that is a shame. Yeah, cause it, especially in the levels where you have to switch back and forth several times between them, it gets really annoying. Yeah, you uh you see the pause menu more often in that game than I care to. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth noting that in a game like Mega Man, the power like your alternate guns are stuck in a pause menu as well. But there's not that same sense of back and forth. Like, you'll choose uh, the Metal Blade for a segment of a stage, whereas in Demon's Crest, for a segment of a stage, you'll typically choose two different gargoyles and flip back and forth. Yeah. So there's like a, an interplay there that the game doesn't really support. Yeah, but the thing is, Mega Man also allows you to switch between um, uh, weapons outside of the pause menu with the shoulder buttons. Well, later ones do. Yeah. But I mean, Demon's Crest came out when when Meg- when that was a thing in Mega Man. Yeah, that's true. Mega Man does have that 
but also I think Mega Man doesn't really need that. Really? I think it's really convenient. It's convenient, but if I'm going to go for minutes at a time with the same weapon, I would be fine using a pause menu to get that. Yeah, especially when you want to time it. Like, if you're about to hit an obstacle that you could destroy with a shield weapon, you can go into the pause menu and and, and get that shield weapon. Or like in a a boss fight, I don't want to be fumbling around with, you know, accidentally spawn the kickball when I want the... (sighs) The clown, uh, clown electric, arms. whatever. Clown arms. Yeah. You know Mega Man 8. That's surprising. <sighs> Why? Because nobody likes that game. Well, I mean, the plot is really stupid. The gameplay is really stupid. <laughs> anyway. Uh, the wireless suits are really stupid. That too. Um... <laughs> Wario fan, what was one time when you switched gargoyles when required by a roadblock? Does water count? Uh, water counts because it'll kill you. Yeah, it, that that was very killy water. It just, you know, I couldn't stand it sometimes, so I just said, you know what, I don't like dying, so I'm going to switch to the water gargoyle. <laughs> <laughs> I've had enough of dying. <coughs> That's enough health loss, I think. I think that's plenty. I'll just I'll switch to the uh, the thing where I won't lose health. <laughs> so, do you have a particular water section in mind? I think it was the uh, the water area uh, under the forest. Yes, the one with the uh, rising and lowering tides. So. Yeah. You know, I just realized that makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, from from a geographical standpoint, no, it does not. Um. So, <laughs> what did you think of that section? Uh, I thought it was kind of tricky, what with the, uh, the sudden, you know, timing of the rising or whatnot. And then you're just trying to do the whole thing without the, uh, the power-up is just a pain. Cause you gotta make sure you get it all, get the jumps all right. And, you know, even if, if, if you don't, then there's still, you know, spikes and other enemies blocking your way too there. So it's real tricky. It's tricky, but it's also, uh, that's a segment I enjoy because of how much depth it has. Like uh, literally or? <laughs> yeah, I like segments that are underground because of how deep they are. <laughs> um, but no, uh, I guess just for starters that the rising and lowering tide means that the gargoyle that you switch to is not dependent on where you are so much as the timing you have. Do, do you see what I mean? Like, uh, I guess I do. You have to switch whenever the tide is low because you're going to hit a spike. Right. But eventually you want... There are some spikes you want to swim over, so it lends a certain amount of dynamism to the situation. I think I get you. I also appreciated how that segment was possible to complete without the water gargoyle. Uh, oftentimes you'll get roadblocks, like you'll need a buster or you'll need the ground gargoyle to charge through, and you just have no options about it. Uh-huh. Um, but that was a segment where they really capitalized upon experimentation. And if you want to get through it as Firebrand, that's possible. But if you want to use air gargoyle, that's an easier way to go about it. So it was, it was surprising in how many options you had. So, Shouty, what was a an instance where you changed gargoyles when you were required to? The last level where you have to use um, air gargoyle to get through that uh, windy part above the castle. Okay. Um, and what what did you make of that part? I think it's the only part where you actually need to switch to air gargoyle. Well, oh wait, no, that's not true. You have to use air gargoyle to get to the um, 
the last armor battle. That is in stage six. Five. Fix, yeah. Fix. Fix. Um, so it, it is notable as one of the few times where the air gargoyle is, uh, required. It's actually, yeah, like that's a, that's to get through a screen and not take an alternate path. Two things worth noting there. First, it would be really easy for them to require air gargoyle because, you know, he's just so powerful he can fly anywhere. But they toned back their level designs that he's primarily an exploration thing. And that's worth noting. Um, do you think that's the case for most of the gargoyle transformations, or do you think that the other ones are more required on the main paths? What do you mean by, um, exploration? Finding side paths rather than bosses. Oh, so you think that changing, uh, your gargoyle is, um, more about finding secret paths than just keep going right? Well, it is for air gargoyle, but would you say the same is true for ground and tidal? Yeah, I would actually, because um, you have to use ground gargoyle to get uh, to the catacombs in the town area. And with Tidal, you don't necessarily have to go into the water. It's an alternate path. I mean, you do to progress the game, but still. Wait, do you need to go to the water to progress the game? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't know. What do you get from the snail? That's That's one tricky point about this game, is that I still don't know what triggers... The next batch of stages. Well, it already is in the next batch of stages. No, I mean, like... I think you have to beat every boss in the first three levels. But do you need to beat the underwater boss in stage five to spawn the final boss? I don't think so. I mean, you're always going to have access to um, uh, level six, but you you are still going to need the water. You're going to need all the crests. Okay. But the uh, the ground goyle definitely has some situations where he's required to go forward. Um, for instance, he's required to get the tidal gargoyle in stage five. Oh yeah. So it seems like for each gargoyle, there are one, maybe two instances where they're required, but uh, quite a few instances where you can explore with them. Yes. So, Wario fan, were there any boss battles where you swapped gargoyles back and forth? Not so much. Well, maybe, maybe the last one, because I heard it was a general strategy. But there was one fight, that, the, the super-duper final fight, where I changed talismans back and forth between fights. Oh, that's what uh, that's what Shouty told me to do. Oh. <laughs> um, but for the final boss, I'm interested to hear, what was that strategy? Not the extra uh, final boss. Well, um, let's see. I just heard that that when he does th- does some of his tricks, like when he's using the wind to blow you into the edge of the the, uh, the screen there, change to the grand gargoyle, and when he's using his black hole trick to change it to the air gargoyle. So, I mean, I I tried that out. You know, Mario fan, I just realized when you're the air gargoyle, you aren't affected by air currents, so the black hole doesn't suck you in. Isn't that great? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I think enough Phalanx's magic trick. <laughs> it's actually just a wind tunnel and not an actual black hole. In that case, it seems like the first Phalanx final boss fight actually has you use every gargoyle, if you think about it. In a way. It. Yeah, yeah, because, uh, I mean, I, that, that sort of more felt out of a, a change than necessity than a change to for, like, you know, actual attack strategy, though, but, you know, I, I guess defense strategy counts too. Yeah. So in that fight, you would say that 
that changing was primarily defense rather than uh, choosing the right way to attack him. Right, exactly. Because I don't even know if Air Gargoyle can hurt him. There are plenty of things that Air Gargoyle, Gargoyle can Yeah, hurt. I I think the only one, I, I think the uh, the legendary Gargoyle is the only one who can hurt him. But really, uh, isn't it? Or can I, Firebrand hurt him? I mean, you I, have the legendary by that point. Why would you use anything else, really? I think Tidal can hurt him. Oh, well, still, I mean, you get the ultimate form there. Why would you use anything else? You know, well, you're a powerhouse. The, the water part of that fight. I just, I just jumped a lot there, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the only part in that fight where I do consider switching. Oh. Okay, so that's that's pretty interesting that there was like a a telegraphed gargoyle for each attack. I think that's unique to that boss. Shouty, was there a, a boss battle where you swapped gargoyles back and forth? Yes, I used um. Ground and uh, air gargoyles for the crawler, the, the hulking mass of necrosis. Uh, so ground was useful because his projectiles are weak to your shot, and really? air was useful just because he's so friggin' big, it's good to get over him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he'll, he'll always try to corner you. Okay. And I I try to get around him, but ground is useful for, yeah, taking out his... his um. So you borrowed the offensive power of one gargoyle and the mobility of another. Yeah. I think it's really cool. That's... I don't know what to make of that. That is really cool. Fox, was there a boss fight where you switched gargoyles back and forth? The one that sticks out most is Phalanx. Particularly the water section, but um, let me think. Usually I just stuck to the same one, and unless I... I can't think of any in particular. So there are plenty of boss fights where you need to be able to jump over a boss, and that's really hard to do as the ground gargoyle. So in those cases, did you just not use the ground gargoyle at all? Probably, yeah. Okay. It is, I guess it is worth noting that there are a number of boss fights that do work with a single, single gargoyle, like the giant snake with scythe hands, whatever that's called. That's you mean the flyer? flyer? Yeah, the flyer. Is that yeah. his canon name? Yes. Flies. Were you saying something, Sandria? Yeah, as I said, um, yeah. Okay. But yeah, for that guy, you can stick to pretty much the air gargoyle. And uh, as stiff as flying was in that game, I actually got a use, like, I got used to uh, the rhythm of flying between his claws and his body after a while. Could you, you just say could you just... Uh, one person Sorry. at a time, please. Why? <laughs> Couldn't you just jump on that guy's back and just hop over him when he was flying towards you? You know, I tried doing that, but he turns around too quickly for me. Didn't like you try when doing this, him? When he's doing the spiral pattern, I don't think he can jump on him. And that's I remember what... doing that for a couple of parts. Okay, so what, what gargoyle did you use there? It's hard to remember. I went through the bosses a lot. Oh. <laughs> But didn't you try rodeoing him, um, Golem? We do have that on footage, yes. I I tried to stand on his back and use the ground gargoyle. (laughs) And, like, spit on him from above. That's cruel. Don't you mean cruel? So, Zanrio, were there any boss fights where you swapped back and forth? Not that I can remember. No, I don't think so. 
So I didn't finish the game either, so maybe there's something later in the game. So most of the time, your strategy your strategy for a boss fight worked well enough with one gargoyle? Yeah. Just walking in the middle of a boss fight, that seems even more annoying. Yeah. You just lose, lose concentration on the actual boss fight, and... Oh, okay, this is actually an interesting question. Um, I didn't come up with any of these questions. I asked a friend what he thought would be <coughs> questions to ask. Uh, Zanrio, did you ever replay an area with a different gargoyle? I did come back to some levels with, with a different gargoyle I didn't have before. Yeah, a lot different thing. Yeah, I returned to the forest level with the air gargoyle after getting him. Yeah. So, talking cost off fine. So did you know that air gargoyle was what you needed to cut those vines, or was that just, like, experimentation and figuring well, out? Well, I, I expected you would be able to cut them, especially when I saw stuff behind them. So I just thought, okay, I have a new attack. I'll try this off. That's pretty similar to something Wario fan mentioned last week. I forget what ability it was, but he mentioned some ability where he saw an item passing through the level and was like, how do I get that? And then he beat the boss, got an ability, and was like, oh, this must be the ability I need to go get that item. It was the little uh, tornado jump. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he had a he had a similar experience to yours where he saw something he needed to do and figured that the next thing he got would be it, what he needed to get. It. Yeah. So aside from getting to go into new places, uh, like uh, in terms of combat, how would you say the level differed between the two gargoyle playthroughs? I was used to power brand and just um, being able to climb to walls, for example. I kept forgetting I couldn't do that with air and kept messing up. That is, uh, actually, yeah, that's a really good point, that with each new ability, you also get a new... I guess you could say there are trade-offs. Yeah, for example, ground can't fly. Yeah. And that's why I prefer to not use ground so much. Just well, when I needed to. You valued your mobility. Yes. I like flying. Do you think that the gargoyles and their uh, their negative aspects were balanced fairly well and got you to play them evenly? Or do you think there was one that was, like, overpowered and should have been knocked down a peg? Um, not, not really. But I, I still think, um, what if Grom was... Kind of annoying to use, but I felt like you had to use them for certain parts, so otherwise uh, I just didn't really like using ground. Yeah, the, the attack that's got on the ground and... Yeah, Ground Goyle does kind of make up for his lack of flying with his offensive capabilities, but then they just kind of shoehorned in the charging attack for arbitrary barriers. So when you see a barrier that you have to charge through... Even though you don't want to switch to Ground Gargoyle, they're kind of forcing you to. Yeah, because I usually switch back right afterwards. <laughs> you, you were having none of that? Yeah. On one hand, that feels like cheap design and like like really easily circumventable. But on the other hand, I think it got me to switch to Ground Gargoyle when I wouldn't have done so otherwise, and got me to think about... It got me to think more about when he might be useful. And so, if a segment required me to charge through, I might challenge myself to continue playing as Ground Gargoyle. 
Yeah. Fox, was there a time where you uh, played the same portion of a level with different gargoyles? Generally only when I wanted to go back to a level to explore things. Okay, so uh, when you got a new gargoyle, you would do some exploring. But what was the gameplay at large like when you replayed the level? Like, how did a how did a firebrand versus an air gargoyle experience compare? Generally, it's just trying out the new power in excess to see what you can do, like testing out the abilities of the new gargoyle, and like spamming your attacks and, and strange things to see what happens. It's a lot of experimentation. It is a good point that enemies will react differently to each individual attack, like each individual gargoyle and each individual crest, uh, except for Tornado, because they just ignore Tornado. So often finding a weakness is just like... Like the bat enemies, for instance, are weak to the air gargoyle, and that's just a matter of cycling through everything you have and then ultimately discovering that they're weak to this one particular thing. So was that a positive experience for you, just getting to try out new stuff on old stuff? Definitely, yeah. Why do you think that was satisfying? Because, like, it wasn't a new experience, was it? Well, you've got a, you've got a new character you're running with, practically. But it's the same old stage design you saw before. Yeah, but you're still going through it in a completely new way. So, even though it's the same level layout and enemy AI, your approach to it has to change because of you have different properties to how you control. Right. Okay. And you... The level design was generally open enough that you could use the new gargoyle? There was usually a level I could think of to use the new gargoyle every time. Something that would be a, a good set piece for their abilities. Yeah. Okay. Like, as soon as I got the title gar- gargoyle, I could think of at least one place I could go to to test them out. The, uh, the title gargoyle is a neat one because generally you don't backtrack too far in Demon's Crest. But for the title gargoyle, you go from getting him in stage 5 all the way to stage 2. That's three stages back. That's the farthest back you ever have to go in the game, I think. Uh, because you never have to revisit stage 1, and you don't get any new exploration possibilities from stage 6. Shouty, did you ever play the same area with two different gargoyles? Not on purpose. I mean, I think the most famous example is going through the, the fourth level. That is the uh, tower you went first. You went through first as Firebrand, then as the Air Gargoyle. Yeah. And then as the Tidal Gargoyle. Oh, definitely. <laughs> it's that huge uh, lake. So, how did those two experiences compare for you? I think this is the only time where I actually felt like it, it was like actually satisfying, as opposed to just replaying a level and just trying to get through it as quick as possible by flying over everything with Air Gargoyle. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think the satisfaction uh, comes from just breaking the level because with Firebrand you have to use the walls as your as your support, but with Air Gargoyle you can just fly fly around everything. So the sense of freedom was really gratifying to you, but it wasn't like the other levels in that um, you were constricted enough that it still posed some sense of challenge. Yeah. Okay. Because, uh, as we all know from Kirby, flying over everything is boring. Yeah. <laughs> so, Wario fan, were there any portions where you uh, swapped, where, where you played the same area with two different gargoyles? 
Well, I don't think I can uh, provide any examples that the uh, the others didn't. But um, and I um, I could try with something else though. It's not so much the uh, uh, different gargoyles, but I I um, I mean exploring the town with uh, Firebrand's Buster equipped gets into that potion shop. So I don't know if that's uh, that's anything. That is kind of neat how you get that weapon and then it opens up more of the shops to get into. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and then I guess uh, level one and two did have a few other areas you could explore with Firebrand's uh, Buster shot. Yeah, the Buster is really the only shot that opens up new areas. I know you mentioned the tornado, but um, that that's more of a jump accessory, and that's pretty quickly outmoded by uh, <laughs> the air gargoyle. Right. Yeah. Also, that that's what the tornado was for. I. So it was an attack, and then I realized it didn't hurt an enemy, so I didn't understand what you were so long to do with it. <laughs> it makes more sense if you've played the Game Boy games first. Um, I haven't. The tornado is really useful there, okay. but uh, not so much in this one. I see. Wait, actually, is it even in the first Gargoyles quest? I don't remember. Oh, no. I played that whole game, and I don't remember. <laughs> uh, but it's definitely in Gargoyle's Quest 2, right? Probably. It has to be. M- maybe it never. Maybe this was the first time there was a tornado. Well, okay, Claw was definitely in Gargoyle's Quest. The one that lets you stick to unstickable walls. Well, I'm sure I know Firebrand had a claw. Nah, ah. <laughs> I just remember. What else did you have then? Did you just wear mittens? <laughs> <laughs> I, I only, the only power-ups I remember from uh, the Gargoyles Quest games are the ones that, that increased your stats. So, Yeah, those games were mostly about stat increases, and uh, that is characteristic of Gargoyles Quest in that um, progression was mostly linear, whereas in Demon's Crest, they wanted you to swap out different powers and progression was mostly, uh, you never took a step forward, you only got more options. If that makes any sense? It makes some sense. Like, uh, you never totally discounted the ground gargoyle. Right. I guess that's everything. I think it's neat that certain gargoyle swapping mechanics come back and are reinvented over the course of the game. Um, for instance, on the lower path of stage two, you have the, uh, candles candelabras you have to light up as firebrand, and then you have to smash the pillars as ground gargoyle, so they force you to swap there. And that comes back later with the candelabras you have to light up in stage six, but then they force you to to switch to the flying gargoyle. So they use the same stage element, but uh, force you to switch between two different gargoyles. Um, so there is a certain amount of experimentation and reinvention within the Sage design itself, which I guess is part of what gets you to experiment and uh, rethink about how you use gargoyles and items. We got a whole smattering of different opinions here. I don't think we... Uh, I don't know. I'm going to have to let this sit and see if anything comes through as a salient point. But until then, did we have any more uh, any more comments on gargoyle swapping and options in Demon's Crest? Yes. What about the spells? Oh yeah, 
what like the optional items. What about yeah. them? <laughs> well, I can tell you that I did not use them until we were recording, Shouty. Yeah. Me neither. I, That's a shame. I remember collecting vellums and jars, but not really doing any spells. And just the only potion I got was just ginseng. Yeah, the Ginsberg. Oh, the Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> so you can recite Howl. Yes. Yes. Um, in back of the rail. So they were there mostly for collecting, and it felt kind of cheap to have to rely on them for actual things to do. I don't know. In a game full of options, I felt like I didn't want to turn to those, but certainly it was neat that the game had avenues I didn't explore. Like, I wonder how quickly I could clear the game if I stocked up on all death spells. Uh, even though I've played through the game three times now, it's interesting that there are still ways of playing it that I haven't explored, being the vellums and uh, uh, potion bottles. I mean, I guess I I didn't consider that sort of stuff because, like, you know, you're already getting yourself life upgrades, you know? I mean, it's not like a Super Metroid had any invincibility potions. <laughs> so you're of the school that it would feel like cheating? You know, I could say that, but then, you know, I did use five potions on the very final boss fight, so I did. I only I used three. Oh, boy. I'm sorry, I had to gloat. I, I needed Wait, some which final boss? Mess. What? Which final boss? Phalanx's final form or the extra boss? Oh, I meant the giant snake Phalanx. Oh, okay. I, I meant the extra boss. Oh, I didn't even beat him. Alright, I guess that wraps it up for Demon's Crest. Uh, it certainly was one hell of a ride. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was in hell. Isn't it wonderful? all right and welcome back i hope you enjoyed the demon's crest music uh for this quote of the cast i have chosen a a Tevis Thompson article from back in October. Uh, Tevis wrote an essay called On Video Game Reviews, and it says quite a few things worth considering. Personally, I'm still mentally digesting it. I might need to give it a few rereads. I wouldn't say it's dense, but it certainly has a lot of concepts uh, to take in all at once. Anyway, I figured we could at least bite off a teeny tiny portion for this podcast, and that teeny tiny portion reads as follows. Mm-hmm. And this is my best Tevis Thompson uh, impression. What makes a good video game reviewer? They are not experts, for one. Professors don't usually make great reviewers in their own field, and neither does someone who's played every platformer in existence. Uh, as a side note, I take offense at that. Such knowledge narrows the perspective of the reviewer and makes it difficult to engage non-experts. Hardcore gamers worship expertise, but an abundance of esoteric trivia often leads to nitpicking, if not missing the point entirely. Video game reviewers don't need to know more about genre history or how games are made, they need to know about something outside of games. Many of the best reviewers I read have clearly been educated in the human world, and they bring to their evaluations an eye unsullied by the ingrained assumptions of video game land, uh, which I assume is a reference to Captain N. 
<laughs> Naturally. <laughs> so, Tevis here at large is uh, taking a reader response oriented stance in which he wishes game reviews understood less the, the historical experience and more uh, the impact that a video game has on the player receiving it. Um, so, Sanrio, are you familiar with the quote I just read? Well, oh. I have read it, and my opinion, the review stuff, I have written a few reviews myself, and I I think that you're missing the point if you just write too much about the past games and what it was like before and trying to compare them to old games. I think it's better to try to let it stand on its own and describe the experience for someone who has no played the game in the series before. So in that sense, your own experience is kind of a, something you want to suppress? Yeah. I'm not saying like, oh, but this game is bad because it's too similar to that game, and therefore there's no new experience. Because someone who plays this sequel of the first game, they have played the previous game, and they don't care about it. Too similar if it's still a good experience. I guess something I, w- I would challenge you on. Have you heard of Guacamele? Yes. So you know that it's like a, an adventure platformer with a heavy yes. emphasis on combat? Yeah. But the the trick of Guacamele is that if you have played a hack and slash before, you are familiar with the uh, the formula of trying to string hits together, and you have weak hits and you finish off with a heavy hit. Guacamelee is well-designed enough, but the thing that sucked the fun out of it for me was that it felt like every other hack-and-slash I had played before. And so I felt like I was just sort of going through the motions that I had already learned. Um, so as someone with prior experience in video games, I felt like I did not enjoy Guacamelee as much as someone who did have prior experience. Yes, fine. And I can, I can see that, and I can understand why people would write that, if that's how they feel. And, I mean, sometimes I can feel like that's what games do. But on the other side, when I read a review for a game that I haven't played any game in the series, and then, and say some, I cut lots of points for it being too similar, then, yeah, but I haven't played those games, so I, I haven't had that experience, and, that, and therefore maybe it's a more rewarding experience. For me, I'm all fresh and new experience. Yeah. In light of that, do you think it is possible to bring together the review that acknowledges experienced players and inexperienced players, or do you think those have to be two different reviews? Yeah, that's, that's a kind of a difficult question. <laughs> I mean, you can bring up both points. Such as, if you've played it before, then it's just more the same, but if you're new to the series, then you enjoy it much more. And actually, personally, I, if I really liked the game and thought it was fun and could have more of it, then I, I wouldn't care if the sequel is more of the same anyway. Yeah, it's a matter of taste. Uh, certain people prefer different things in games. So, Fox, I was wondering, uh, what kinds of reviews do you enjoy reading? When you see a review with a more historical approach, does that turn you off, or does that turn you on? I wish I could phrase that way. (laughs) (laughs) I don't often read reviews, actually, but uh, 
I, since I do, I, I, if, when I do, I look for ones that are catered towards me. So I, I'd like to have a historical. Uh, I'd like I'd like to have that in consideration. So it would de- it would depend on whether or not you have experience with that genre or series. Right. Well, okay. I, it's very important to me that I play a game that isn't exactly the same each time because I really hate getting fed the same experience over and over. I see. So you, uh, you and Zanrio are uh, polar opposites on this issue. I think so. So if you read, I don't know, Ape Escape Three review, and the reviewer says, "Man, this is the same exact game as Ape Escape Two, and you haven't played Ape Escape Two, would you value that commentary?" Yes. Um. I was just thinking of the exact same thing, but with a different game. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure Ape Escape 3 is vastly different from Ape Escape 2. Probably, yeah. What game were you thinking of? I, I know there was a hockey game release that was an exact clone of its predecessor. Ooh. Well, it's sports games, yeah. Um, but I mean, just like the same game re-released. So in that case, uh, which hockey game did you end up going with? <laughs> um, the, the one with the best graphics. Okay. So... <laughs> Even though you appreciated knowing that it was the same game, because you hadn't played that game before, it didn't matter. Right. Okay. And do you think in writing a review, a historical perspective has the potential to interfere with the integrity of the review? Now, what do you mean by historical perspective? Is it just like knowing games in that genre that have existed before, or just games in the series that might influence that? Okay, to be, like, I guess perfectly explicit with how I'm using that word, historicism is like the study of how one piece of art follows from the next. So, like, historicism would study what was Shakespeare inspired by, and what did Shakespeare inspire? Hmm. So do you think that kind of perspective can infect a review? I'm not sure. Actually, I'm still not sure if I exactly follow. I'm trying to figure it out in my head how that would be written down in a review, or how that would be expressed. So, like, uh, after after Gears of War, lots of shooters were using cover systems, so subsequent third-person shooters would take a lot of inspiration from Gears of War. But also, the cover system was, to my knowledge, more or less invented by Operation Winback. So Gears of War takes inspiration from Operation Winback. So that's okay. the kind of thing you might see um, mentioned in a review. Like uh, Vanquish, you would say, oh, it has a Gears of War-style cover system, but you get docked points for covering. Right. Well, that's part of the reason I don't like scores in reviews. It's because the score itself is a big influence on it, uh, but when you're able to take it, take the review in a whole piece by piece, it's a lot easier to get a an, an idea of what they're trying to say, but catered to you, instead of like reading all the information and then getting a score, which would sour that a bit. When you sit down and read a review, you can you can tell what parts apply to you and what don't. Right. Okay. Definitely, yeah. So it seems like you're saying that the historical review and the ahistorical review can be compromised and exist within the same space. I think so. Okay. Shouty, when you read a review, do you try to stray away from those with a historical perspective? Yeah, I do. And the reason why is because I don't think any of them are done well. Ooh. So if potentially if there was one done well, yeah, I I think I would try and give it a read because I think if you want to insert historical context, then you're going to have to create a thesis around it and bring citations to do it properly. 
What? A video game review with a thesis? I've never heard such a thing. <laughs> yeah, gee, what a crazy idea. <laughs> but seriously, I think that if you're going to try and cite historical examples, you can't be wishy-washy about it. Is that the problem with uh, historical references in video game reviews at the moment? They're too wishy-washy? Yeah. So what do you mean by wishy-washy? I, I just mean that they don't seem concrete and that I need uh, tangible evidence. I'm giving, being given historical context. You're reading a Super Mario Galaxy review and the reviewer says, yeah, it's pretty much the same thing as Super Mario 64. And you're like, in what sense? And then the reviewer moves on to like how crazy the platforming is. <laughs> yeah. I'd have to give an example. I generally find evidence lacking in a lot of reviews. And um, I guess one historical example that bothered me was, I think it was IGN's Kirby Squeak Squad review, where the guy says, oh, the level design is pretty tip... Well, I, okay. I think it was IGN's review, but I will admit I haven't read it in, like, friggin' six years. But anyway... <laughs> What I remember is the reviewer saying, the level designs are typical of Kirby games. And then he didn't say what was typical of Kirby games. So, like, it could have just meant that level designs had enemies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even some, even an example that's not necessarily cited would be fine. Yeah, just say, like, uh, just so I have some idea of what he thinks is typical of Kirby level designs. Yes. Because that would that would um, give perspective to what the uh, the reader might think of Kirby level, level design. Exactly. Um, that's in critical writing in general. It is important to make aware, make your reader aware of your perspective, just at all times. <laughs> so uh, I guess it is still worth asking. Do you think historical video game knowledge can interview with a I'm sorry. I'll try that sentence again. Do you think historical video game knowledge can interfere with a reviewer's inter a reviewer's ability to evaluate or interpret raw player experience? No, not if done right. Would you say that wishy-washy historical commentary gets in the way of a good review, or is it just like you can ignore that sentence? Yeah, I think I could probably ignore like if they say this game is just like this or or that and. I'm not going to know what that means. So it's a, it's a useless sentence. Yeah, I, it, it's uh, it's ugly to read, but it doesn't nullify the review for you. Really? I think it sort of just tunes me out. Yeah. So it seems like you're in the same camp of Fox on the issue of historicism and ahistoricism, that they can be combined in the same review. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Wario fan, when you look at reviews, do you try to get a historical perspective? I don't know. When I look at reviews, I just scroll down and look at the score. <laughs> I'm not the best example here. What if it doesn't have a score? <laughs> then I don't... Well, then You keep scrolling! <laughs> exactly! <laughs> don't stop! Maybe it's in the comments! Oh, God! That's the worst place to look! <laughs> oh, God! No! The comments! <laughs> a plus out of five. <laughs> I mean, I, I, the only reviewer I I only really uh watch these days, I guess, is a classic game room, 
and, and that guy's played everything, literally. It is neat how simultaneously, like, Mark has a very historical perspective and that he's aware, like, even in genres he's not confident in, like platformers, he can still identify traditions and identify the type of player that will enjoy a certain game. And it seems like he uses his historical approach as a way to understand how you approach a game if you want to enjoy it. He uses historicism to tap into reader response, if that makes any sense. So you're saying that you make a comparison that a potential viewer might think, uh, might, might, might um, convince the, the viewer into liking the game. Exactly. Or, or having an opinion about the game in general. Yeah. And I think, like, if the inexperienced gamer can ignore that sentence, then I don't think it gets in the way, because Mark does well enough to explain, like, I don't know, if he's reviewing some random shooter that's very technical, he'll say, you know, if you like our type, you'll like this game, but also he will explain the ways in which it is like our type in that it is technical. Mm-hmm. Uh, historicism is just part of his toolkit. I think you'll notice in uh, pretty much every review of a strategy RPG, he'll always compare it to Front Mission 3. <laughs> well, some of us are biased. <laughs> <laughs> There's no getting around the. Uh, yeah, I actually don't watch his reviews of strategy RPGs because I don't like strategy RPGs. Well, we'll have to fix that. So, Wario fan, it seems like you are up in the air on whether or not historicism and a, hi- a historicism can exist together. I'm average video game review guy. I already told you that. I just look at the score to see what people give it, but. uh I, I I do think sometimes, um, like, if I see a lower score on a certain game and the reviewer says, well, I've never played such and such game before, so I thought all of this was bad. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, they should have given it to somebody who did like such and such game. So you sometimes you will use historicism as a clue that uh, someone doesn't understand how to enjoy a certain kind of game or just right. doesn't enjoy it at all. Yeah. Like if they gave me a strategy RPG to review. Right. I think Shining Force was a Shining Farce, so I didn't enjoy this. <laughs> Don't let soup hear it. Oh. <laughs> so I think we ran through the gamut of questions for everybody. Any other thoughts they wanted to mention about this uh, About this quote? Yeah, I, do. yeah, I guess. Uh, I guess uh, sometimes it's... Can I ponder it uh, uh, ponder it as, well, it, if you like that game, that other game, you'll probably like this, or things like that. I'm not sure how to, how to what, what I'm trying to, to say. Um, Recommendations based on if you've played a certain game before. Yeah, yeah, that's good, actually, because I'm often I'm thinking, oh yeah, I played that game, and I like that one, so... But uh, if you hated... I don't know. I'm just going to pick a random game. If you hated Tales of Sym- Symphonia and someone says, you'll love Call of Duty Modern Warfare if you liked uh, Tales of Symphonia, will that turn <laughs> you off of Modern Warfare? Yeah. Probably. Okay. Yeah. No, it's, not like, it's more if someone focuses too much about while I just what I head for. I don't like when people focus too much about that it's similar to the previous games and cuts a lot of points for that, just for that alone. Because the is supposed to tell the same. 
Is the game itself a farm? Yeah. That's my opinion, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So, Fox, uh, you were gonna say? Yeah, uh, one of the things that this whole conversation has made me think of is, is who is, might be the better reviewer overall between, uh, someone with historical background, Mark, or Conan O'Brien. <laughs> on the one hand, you know, it's entertaining to see Mark gush about a game. On the other hand, it's entertaining to watch Conan react to gaming tropes. To me, it's it's kind of like the difference between, uh, well, like the example in the uh, quote is is a professor versus just someone inter- looking at it from the outside. Is he Mark as a professor? Absolutely. In a sense, yeah. I call him a professor. When Mario fan mentioned watching Conan, that reminded me that like. While I find Conan's commentary not to my taste, the things he'll do in games, just like screwing around with geometry and levels, is stuff that I will often do to amuse myself. <laughs> I don't, I don't you know. Use what. a game to amuse yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Holy uh, crap! <laughs> I don't know what we're insinuating here. <laughs> games for entertainment? Better be studied, Gorlo. So, Fox, I was wondering. Do you have any gaming resolutions for 2014? I'm shooting for 4K. <laughs> what? 4,000 <laughs> gamer score? Uh, I think he means the, the the literal resolution 4K. Yeah. Oh! Oh my! Getting, oh. getting the obvious joke out of the way. Oh, I didn't even. Oh my! How did you do that? I thought you liked puns, Golem. Come on, get your head in the game. I like them when they don't go over my head. <laughs> um, so, so nothing? Or are you really going for 4,000 resolution? Uh, I, probably not. I, okay. I, I, I look, I'm going to try and, uh, beat a lot of wizardry games, I guess, if that counts. Oh, no. <laughs> May the force be with you. You play a lot of weirdo, esoteric PC games, so you'll probably be fine. That's kind of offensive. (laughs) (laughs) You play through Limbo the Lost, you'll be fine. Okay, that's probably a less offensive way to phrase that. Yeah. I judge other people's tastes. (laughs) You didn't come off that way. (laughs) When I first met you. Oh, I play a lot of, I don't know, shallow, shallow, jumpy games. Like Hotel Miami. Yeah, that's right. That did have a lot of jumping in it. That was my favorite platformer. <laughs> um, Shouty, do you have any uh, 2014 resolutions for gaming? Uh, I'm going to try to look at my backlog. I guess uh, that is a popular one. Yeah. Uh, what's next on your backlog? Uh, literally? Like, yeah. 
what's the next game you're going to pick out of your backlog and say, you're finished? Well, I'd like to complete Wonderful 101. Ooh. I, and I'd like to use that uh, Kamiya momentum to jump right into Okami. Ooh. You know, that Okami is a weird game. He doesn't... Kamiya doesn't strike me as an adventure man. Yeah, he's a lot more about the spectacle and cook time events. Yeah. There's no real adventure in that. The adventure of pressing buttons. Yeah. They tell you to. <laughs> so, uh, Sanrio, any resolutions for 2014? Yes. Clara, big false my backlog. Beta this. 50 games, plus the number of new games I, I, I'm buying this year. Um, so what are you going to start with at, Start with on your backlog? I have no idea. There's, <laughs> there's like 70-something games in there. Uh, or 80-something, I don't remember. I do not envy you. I have too much money to throw around today. Of not a game, so. That's the thing about growing up. Like, you lose time and you gain money. Yes. Yeah. I know that too well. When I was a kid, I only had those few GBA games and later a few DS games, and I just played those a lot. So then I'm. Oh. More money and started being able to buy all the games I wanted. Say, Levy. Yeah. Uh, so, Wario fan, any gaming resolutions for 2014? I I don't have anything more interesting to say than than clearing the backlog. Uh, do you know uh, what which backlog? Which will probably. Oh my gosh! You know. Uh, and I could try to make a dent, but by the time I finish making that dent, I'll have bought in 50 more games this year, so whatever. Well, huh. still, it's one step at a time. Don't talk to me. <laughs> you have to do the laundry at your feet, as uh, Fruits Basket would say. Fruits Basket told you that? Fruits Basket told me that. The and, manga? Uh, yeah, the manga. And if Fruits think... Basket says something, you better listen. Oh, man, I didn't think a uh, manga like Fruits Basket would be so thoughtful. <laughs> it's the people you least expect, shall we? Uh, manga, uh, Fruits Basket is a manga composed entirely of, like, sayings that Benjamin Franklin could have said. Like, really <laughs> say things. Holy crap. Like, I love you, senpai? <laughs> um... I think there's a metaphor about eating leeks. Oh. One of my resolutions is to finally finish writing about Ocarina of Time because I've been putting off doing that for a while. Oh, I remember that. Didn't you stop at the Water Temple? Yeah. That's funny because when I was playing Ocarina of Time, I left off at the Water Temple for like an extended period. But it's the best temple. Yeah, that's why I had to wait. I have oh. to really digest it. It's like, oh man. I see. I do this. Oh man. He was exploring all that depth in the water temple. I like areas that are underground because they're very deep. 
This show could so link. funny. I think you both said the opposite thing. <laughs> so, uh, Wario fan, any final words? No, not not particularly. I think I'm, you know, uh, I'm I'm pleased to have finally played through a Demon's Crest after hearing about its legacy for so many years. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that I have done the same thing. Um, Gowdy, <laughs> any final words? Um, no. That's I think I've okay. said enough. Okay, okay, that's good. Uh, Fox, any final words? Gabba, gabba, gabba. <laughs> <laughs> Not again. <laughs> and, uh, I, I meant no offense by my PC commentary. Now you're fine. <laughs> now you're fine. Root of all evil. You've been absolved of all students. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rio, any final words? My banhammer is ready. I think you said that last week too. I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to thank you all for joining me, and I think Demon's Crest was quite the adventure, and uh, we got a lot of substantive things said about it. music in this podcast was taken from Demon's Crest. I'll leave you with this final thought. I think it's neat how every week we discuss Demon's Crest, we were discussing the same thing, just from a different viewpoint. For instance, the first week, we discussed bosses, but when we did that, it was important to discuss how our different forms influenced bosses, and how our exploration influenced bosses. In the second podcast, we discussed exploration, but it was important to note how bosses led to more exploration, and how our abilities influenced how we explored. And of course this week, when we were talking about our different abilities, we had to discuss how our different abilities influenced combating bosses, and how we were able to explore more with them. It's interesting how interconnected these topics were, and it's neat to consider that we were able to learn more about a single issue by considering it from a multitude of perspectives. Maybe she'll yeah. be back. I think we waited. I think we waited long enough. Well, I know I can trust you. What is that supposed to mean? I don't know. <laughs>